Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. I'm a reality of your everyday life. I have many names, many faces, many shapes and forms. I come in every size and color. I am blamed for more failures than anything or anyone else. I am no respecter of persons. I do not play favorites and I never choose sides. Within me are invisible seeds of greatness and immeasurable fields of frustration. What you choose to do with me will make you better or bitter. The people who don't want me the most inevitably have the most of me. The great paradox is that I will never go away, yet I can show anyone a better way. Without me, there will be zero chance of success. In fact, I am the driving force behind all achievement and progress. And the better you get at dealing with me, the better you, you will be. It's not a matter of if you will face me, but when you will face me. And with that, let me make you a guarantee. I will be in your face every day. I am the one thing in your life that has the potential to help you think bigger, be better, and do the impossible in every area of your life. Unfortunately, until you meet me, everything is fine, and like most people say, it just is what it is. Those people, by the way, do not know the power I have to make their potential a reality. The most important thing about me you need to know is that I am waiting every day to be used by you or in worst case scenarios to be used against you. Who am I? I am your problem. And in case no one ever told you, my last name is Solution. When God wants to give you a gift, and He wants to give us lots of things, when God wants to give you a gift, He wraps it up inside a package called a problem. And the bigger the package, the greater the gift inside the package. I call it, years ago, a message I remember I did years ago, called Promise, Problem, provision. Those three words describing the sequence of events that God uses to grow us and to get us to our place of provision. So God promises Canaan to the Israelites. Then they walk into a problem called the resistance of the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Egyptian authorities. Then they have the resistance and the problem of the wilderness before they eventually reach the provision of the promised land. So God sends a promise and then he sends a problem and then if we survive the problem we get into the land or the place of provision or the gift that God wants you to have. I don't know why life is rigged that way. It's not just for the church although I think we need to understand it more and interpret it better than those that are frustrated all the time that it's three steps forward and two back and don't understand that the, the middle stage, the the problem stage is created by God as it was from the beginning. <clears throat> you can't have a big promise and have a small 
problem. Don't ask God for something big for your life and through your life. And then say, but by the way, God, I don't want any trouble. You can't have a million pound promise and a 50p problem. M. Scott Pegg wrote a book called The The Road Less Traveled. And in this book, he said, it is within the whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguish between success and failure. Problems call forth courage and wisdom and even create our courage and wisdom. It is only because of our problems that we grow mentally and spiritually. We grow through the pain of confronting and resolving problems. Fearing the pain involved, almost all of us tend to avoid problems. We procrastinate, forget about them, pretend they don't exist. We take drugs to assist us in ignoring them so that deadening ourselves to pain, we forget the problems that cause the pain, this tendency to avoid problems. And the emotional suffering in them is the primary basis for all human mental illness. That's why God has wired us to solve problems. You are a walking, problem-solving machine. It is within the DNA of every human being, not just Christians, every human being has been wired by God to be a problem-solving machine. Now, most of the planet don't know what I'm telling you today, and much of the church don't understand that either, but I've always been fascinated by how little time God spends on talking to people about the problem. I've always been intrigued by how little attention Jesus gave to the problem and how much attention he gave to fixing it. I think we are much more caught up with the problem. I think we are much more interested in dissecting and speaking about and analyzing and explaining the problem than God ever was or is through history and through scripture. Genesis 1 is really an account of God creating things and setting things in motion to prevent perpetual problems troubling the earth for the rest of its existence. Genesis 1 is an account of God of God preventing perpetual decline, which is how God stepped in, as it were, to creation. It was chaos and void. It was a massive problem. And God began speaking into being solutions to problems, and then he set in motion the gift of reproduction and the gift of wisdom and problem solving into the whole DNA of creation so that, so that perpetual problems and decline would not be the norm of the universe. He said, let there be light. And God said, let there be light to prevent perpetual darkness dominating the earth. And if God hadn't have said that, darkness would have prevailed and negativity and the problem of darkness would have prevailed throughout history and throughout the universe. And so the first thing he said was, let there be light. I've always found it fascinating as well in the Genesis account, by the way, that the first thing God ever said to get into the chaos and the decline and the problem of the chaos and the void and the darkness of the world and the universe, he said, let there be light. But there was no sun till day four. So what was that light? It wasn't sunlight. There was no sun till day four. When God said, let there be light, 
The Hebrew word for light there is the word order. God said, let there be order. Like a judge in a courtroom that's out of order. God said, let there be order. Let's get some order in here. Let's, let's put a halt to the decline, the chaos, the mess, the rebellion, the lack of alignment. And he said, let there be light. And that order, that first thing God spoke was let there be order. And that order became God's constant commitment to Preventing that condition continuing throughout creation. He created atmosphere. An atmosphere was his speaking into being something that would prevent the perpetual decay and void that would take place unless he spoke into being atmosphere. He spoke structure and order to prevent perpetual chaos. He spoke movement. He put movement into the universe and movement into creation to prevent perpetual stagnation. He spoke into being relationship to prevent perpetual loneliness. He spoke rest to prevent perpetual stress. He spoke reproduction to prevent perpetual barrenness. He spoke seasons to prevent perpetual sameness in life and in creation. This gives you the idea from the beginning how God is wired. But God didn't spend the rest of the book of Genesis explaining to the world why things were like they were. We have, many of us, gone on at length about why things were like they were. But God spent no time on explaining the darkness or the void or how it got to be like that or blaming the devil for it. And excusing himself and saying, it wasn't my fault by the way, I didn't do this, it's not what I do. God just said, let there be light and then spent six days creating solutions to prevent those problems perpetuating themselves and God steps in and becomes solution minded and let's get this fixed minded and this is this is our creational mandate it's not even our redemptive post cross mandate it's not even our not even our salvation mandate our christian mandate it is a creational mandate it is part of the creational order of things for every human being, not just the church, but the church should be doing this more than any other group of people in the world. Sadly, we're often not. We're contributing more to the problem than the answer in our communities. But it was God's creational mandate that every human being would buy into this idea that divinity, God, our creator, is interested in the solution and the prevention of problems becoming the governing force in life. You know, when Jesus healed a sick person, he didn't just heal a sick person to remove illness. He did it to hand them back a future. I think we forget about that when we read scripture because we just turn the page and we read on. And often we don't hear what happened to the person that he healed. But healing and deliverance and freedom is not just about being set free from a problem. It's about being released towards a solution-oriented future. When Jesus sent the lepers home healed, that's not, that was not his agenda. You were sick and now you're well. <clears throat> it's like being released from prison after a life sentence and spending your life camping outside the prison on the pavement. So you're free, 
but you're only three steps free. So you couldn't say that they weren't free, it's still freedom, but you're still living so close to where you came from, you might as well go back in jail. And many of us in Christian life, and many people in life generally, they, they live a few steps away from the problem. And I think the whole way God has rigged life is that when He fixes a problem, His intention is that you have many, many years then of living in the solution, living in the benefit, the goodness, that was to reverse the perpetual problem you were in. So when He healed the lepers, He was sending them home to spend the rest of their life with their wives and kids. He was sending them home to dream again, to get a job, to contribute to society, to be a difference-making person, to go on to be a solution-bringing person when they were the ones that were so controlled and dominated by a perpetual problem called illness, and in their case, leprosy. When Jesus raised the dead, He didn't raise the dead for them to be a trophy on His TV program or in His ministry magazine. Or take them around the conferences with him and put them on screen and have them testify that this is what Jesus did for me to, to get the crowd whipped up or get more followers. He, when Jesus raised people from the dead, he raised them from the dead to send them back into a life that death had robbed them of and to go and live a life. <clears throat> when Jesus cast demons out of Legion, 2,000 demons... The legion was clinging onto Jesus saying, I want to go with you. He said, don't come with me. He said, get away from me. Go and live your life. He didn't spend years with legion analyzing the problem and how you got into this mess and how we avoid doing this again. Let's, let's get some psychoanalysis going on here. Let's find out. I've never met anybody as far gone as you were. Anybody as problematic as you were. You terrorized the neighborhood for years. We gotta, we're going to find out why you were in the mess you were in. And he just said, get away from me. Go and tell people what God did for you. Whenever you hear again of legion, <clears throat> 2,000 demons. But you know what the Bible doesn't tell you, but what we have to imagine is that imagine meeting legion in his 80s with his grandkids on his knee. That's what Jesus was after. The day he set legion free, it wasn't like that's it, I'm done with you. You know, you were demon possessed and now you're free. Let's write a song. Let's preach a message. Let's, let's capture it in time and photograph it. And that's all we talk about for the next 20 years. But that the guy went on to live a productive life and to, to get a job and earn money and buy a house. And have kids and grandkids and go on holiday to Disneyland and, and get a motorcycle and nick on a bus or... Just live your life, Legion. Just, I came to set you free. I didn't come to leave you a few feet from where I found you. Yeah, you've no more demons, but you're still living in poverty. You still hang around the tombs where you lived all your life. No one still talks to you. You still have no friends or no family. No one would think of marrying you. You'll never have kids. You'll never have grandkids. You'll never have a normal life. When Jesus met Legion... The moment he saw him, Jesus is solution-minded. The disciples, when Jesus got out the boat and stepped on the, so the, the sandy shore on the edge of the lake in the region of Gennesaret, where this man had terrorized for years, when Jesus stepped on the shore 
And he gets walking on the little beach there. And the Bible says, Legion comes screaming towards them with his hair flailing like a wild animal and his nails overgrown and blood flowing from all this self-harming he'd done to himself. And chains that were broken by his own demonic strength trailing from his arms and legs and neck and wherever they chained him. Must have been a terrible, terrible, terrifying sight. And Jesus sees him and Jesus starts walking towards him. And the disciples that were climbing out the boat go, think we'll pull up somewhere else. This is a problem. This is bigger than us. This is out of our league. We've never faced this before. What do we do now? Instead of doing what society did, which was let's find more medication and more chains and let's subdue this problem even more. Let's contain the problem. Jesus is like, let's, let's liberate the solution inside the man and let's release him to a lifetime of being a solution-bringing person to people that may never have known the background he came from, but I want to release him to go on and to live his life. Imagine the prostitute that Jesus forgave, the one that came and washed his feet and dried his feet with her hair and wet them with her tears and she was at a very upmarket posh attended by the who's who of the religious organization and she's there and everyone knew she's a prostitute and he forgives her and releases her and said I don't condemn you imagine meeting her in her 70s when she's happily married and got kids and grandkids and Maybe she's a charity worker in the community. Maybe she has gone on to be a successful business person. Maybe she's set up a, a ministry like we do in our red light area to reach people in our community like she was reached. You don't hear that, but that's why Jesus set her free. He didn't set her free to stop that day and to use her story to gain points for himself. He set people free to go and live a solution-oriented, miles and miles and miles away from the old problem, Life, that's what he came to do in Luke 4, 18, Amplified Version. He said, I have come to send forth as delivered those who are oppressed. Send forth where? Into their future. To, to get beyond their problem, to get beyond perpetual decline, which would govern their life. Years of a problem followed by many, many more years of solution and solution bringing as they turn from being a problem to being a solution to other people's worlds. Imagine meeting the woman with the issue of blood in her 70s. Now healed and free of what that brought to her life. She spent her whole life managing the problem. For 12 years, it tells us that she couldn't get cured and she spent her life around hospitals and doctors and medication and every conversation was filled with the problem and how it's getting worse and every day was a hope for a cure as she saw another surgeon another doctor another consult and it didn't work and the next medication didn't work and the next surgery didn't work and and on it went and every day for 12 years she was defined by the problem and then she touched Jesus and she was delivered and she wasn't just made well she was sent back to go and now live the rest of her days in the joy of health and happiness and become a solution-bringing problem. She, she joined the creation on mandate of Genesis 1 to live your life preventing perpetual decline and bringing solution and order 
and beauty and joy and laughter to people's worlds, never knowing maybe where you came from. Imagine Zacchaeus in his 70s when Jesus first met him up the tree and he was the most hated person in the community. Now he's in his later life and he's lived a life of complete generosity and he's now lived a life of benevolence since Jesus met him. How much money he maybe gave to charity? How many things he established in his lifetime? Maybe maybe there was the Zacchaeus Foundation. As he turned his heart towards being a solution in the community, instead of a taker, he became a giver. That's why Jesus went to his house. Jesus didn't go to his house to get a trophy tax collector on his testimony newspaper sheet or on his circuit. He came to give him a future. And I've got to tell you today, this is what God wants us to realize. If God can do that, if God can do that for people and for us, so can we. We can bring light and dispel perpetual darkness. We can bring atmosphere and dispel stagnation. We can bring order We can bring relationship. We can bring rest. We can bring seasons. We can bring movement into our relationships and our towns and cities and nations. We are now the generators of solutions in order that we might prevent perpetual problems and decline. Because as I read you at the beginning, your problems and our problems are, and we'll look back on this, maybe not now and things we're going through, but is the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Our problems are our friends. We should write thank you notes to all our problems. I say thank you. You know, Goliath was the best thing ever happened to David. On the day you saw him nine foot tall and all the trained soldiers quivering in their boots and you're a little spotty teenager. I, I don't think on the day it was anybody was saying that, but looking back, David would be thinking, if it wasn't for Goliath, I wouldn't be king. Nobody would have written songs about me if I hadn't taken down Goliath. So maybe you should have written a letter to Goliath's family saying, Oh, thank you for what your son did for me. (laughs) Numbers 14 verse 9, we get the story of Joshua and Caleb and the spies going into the land. It's very interesting what the Bible says. And this is a King James version of this dialogue which only says this, and I find it significant and interesting what Joshua and Caleb said in verse 9 of Numbers 14, the King James Bible. It says, Joshua and Caleb said to Moses and to the people, Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Leaders, problem solvers, solution bringers, see problems as bread. Joshua and Caleb were the only two in millions that saw the enemy in the land and saw the problems that resisted their progress. They were the only two that seemed to perceive them differently to the rest. They saw the problem as bread, as nourishment, as something to feed off. And problems are bread. They are food, they are nourishment. And the more we grow, the more bread we need, so the more problems we get. At work, they don't pay you more money for less problems. They pay you more money for the more problems you can solve and be an answer to. The highest pay 
is going to the greatest problem fixers. The bread is in the problem. So we have to learn to rip the bread out of the problem. Samson said, and gave a riddle to the Philistines, speaking of the lion that he killed with his bare hands, and then in the carcass of the lion, weeks or months later, he goes by, and in the carcass of the lion, bees have made a nest, made a beehive inside the dead carcass, and honey is now, is now being made in that beehive in the carcass of the lion. And Samson says this, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the bitter came something sweet. That, that little riddle he gave the Philistines, I believe, is the philosophy of God when it comes to problems. That out of something difficult came something awesome, out of something bitter came something sweet. Sometimes rough roads lead to great places. If you've ever gone off-road in your vehicle down uncharted, no GPS for this part of the drive kind of roads, they've often led to some amazing places that are relatively unknown, undiscovered, but it was a rough road to get there. And many people avoid the rough roads, but that's why many people never get to sometimes the best places. Not all the best places have a tarmac highway that take you there. And if you spend your life looking for tarmac, looking for other company on the road, then I guess you will never find the road less traveled that often leads to the places less discovered by people and by the church. Solutions don't have to be fancy, impressive, wisdom masterpieces. Sometimes you can't fix a problem and all you do is just keep flipping growing. When I was in London and again in Singapore, because it was on my mind and you can observe it not far from our building, you'll often see these trees that are growing and they've grown so big that they've lifted the pavement or lifted the tarmac or lifted the stone walls or lifted the brick walls that are nearby them. And it's fascinating to me because the stone and, and concrete slabs and things that are much heavier and stronger than the tree but the difference is that those things are not growing. They're dead. But the wood, the tree, continues to grow. And as it grows and grows, it doesn't think, well, I can't get any further than the concrete flags and the stone wall there and the tarmac that's a few feet away. My growth will be very small because I'm surrounded by things that won't move and that are going to keep me small. I'm not in a forest. I'm not surrounded by soil where my roots can go. I... I am constrained, I'm confined, but the tree just keeps growing and it lifts the pavement. And you see these paving slabs that are like that as the trunk of the tree goes up and drags them with it. Sometimes you beat stuff by just keeping growing. The concrete doesn't say, well, I'm going to be soft for you. I'm not going to lift the flags for you. Life doesn't say, I'll remove the wall from you. It just says, this is how it is. But if you'll just, some things you beat by just keeping growing. You don't remember when you beat them. <laughs> it's just that, well, I don't really know, I don't remember a crisis, a solution. I don't know that I have much wisdom for you that are facing the same issue. I don't remember a, a moment when I had a wisdom masterpiece and fixed it. I just probably just kept going and it just probably thought, well, I can't beat them. I might as well join them. Just keep 
going. Some problems don't go away. They just become a smaller part of the total entirety of your life. They're kind of there, but they're not there in the degree that they were because you just kept growing. And sometimes that's how you solve some things. So today, please don't think you need a wisdom masterpiece that you can fix a thing with and go and apply a wisdom to and then tell others later what you did. Some of you don't know what's going on. You're just muddling through, but you know that you are moving, there's progress, there's a shift, and it's not as tidy as you'd like. It's like, it's like camping, and at night, the guy line comes loose, and there's a storm, and you can hear it flapping, and you're in your cozy sleeping bag, and you think, do I go out into the wind and the driving rain and, and, and try and fix the guy line or do I lay here and hope the wind will die down and then in the daylight I can see what I'm doing and you struggle with the idea and then another guy line comes loose and you think the tent's going to take off and more of it is flapping than is pinned down so you go out in the night with a little torch and you see the guy line and you you, you get one end of the guy line and another end where it's coming loose or it might be ripped and you you tie the best knot that you can and you you tie it down and then you get a brick or a piece of wood or a rock nearby and you put it on top of the peg and you try and pin it down and it looks a mess and it is a mess and it's not how it was supposed to be, but it does the job. And sometimes the best you can do is to go out and put a rock on it or tie an ugly looking knot on it or put a piece of wood on it. And that's the best you can do. And it's not tidy, it's not brilliant, it's not a masterpiece. No one can say it was a brilliant piece of uh, Ray Mears survival. But it did the job and the tent didn't blow away and you slept a more peaceful night because you did something. And the solutions don't have to be fancy, don't have to be brilliant. The best you can do sometimes is all you can do. And that's all that God's after. And I think some of us sometimes we're so fussy. So wanting it to be like we heard someone else fixed it or like we heard. That's how you're supposed to do that. And you're not living in the world of supposed to. You're living in your real life and you've got to do what you can do. And you don't need to tell anyone that you did a messy job on the guy line. No one needs to know. You can tell them you did a brilliant job. And that you did your fantastic knots and you fixed it. No one needs to know. All that you need to know is that it was a problem and then I had a solution. And then I went on to enjoy the rest of my time on the other side of that solution. And the solution wasn't pretty or awesome but it was a solution. I don't think Jesus spent time wasting with people analyzing, well, let's see, what's the betty, best, prettiest, coolest way to fix this? It was some of the solutions that Jesus brought to people's lives were on the hoof. They were, they were sudden. They were not thought through. They were, I mean, imagine interrupting a funeral. I mean, why not get there earlier? Why not have a discussion with someone before you clearly do what is inappropriate and and violates the etiquette and violates the rules of cleanliness according to Hebrew law. And why, why do that? Why wait? Why? I mean, the timing was terrible. When you watch and analyze Jesus' life, it's like he's not even trying to be tidy. It's just I'm walking this way, this crossed my path. Hey, it's like the one with the issue of blood. He's on his way to, re to help a girl that's dying. She interrupts his journey. It's like these two things meet in the middle. 
It's not tidy, it's just as it happened. And the Bible tells you it as it happened. And, and, and the writers of the Gospels tell you it as it happened. And you think, wow, I think we read it tidier than it is. I think we think it's all thought through and it was sequential. And on this day, Jesus planned to do that. And on that day, planned to do that. I think Jesus just went through life and just handled whatever came. And on, if you'd have been with Jesus, as, I mean, we teach it now with rose-colored glasses on. We put such a spin on it. We, we make it look so wonderful and so set piece of brilliance. But at the day, living with him in the shoes of the disciples, on the day it's been said and happening, it was just a mess. And, and, the, and the reason they were so freaked out is that it was a mess. And the questions they asked were because it looked to them like a shambles. And Jesus was like, you guys don't get it. We're not interested in going around looking fantastic, having all the answers, looking like we're a walking wisdom machine. We're just doing life and I'm just here to bring solutions. And if I say to a guy, you're healed and go home or get out of that coffee and you're too young to die or I don't want you to have leprosy. Go and get married and have a great family and live a great life. I don't want you to live at the bottom of society. Get up and I forgive you and go and get on. Come out of that tree and come and have tea with me. That's just how it all happened. But at the end of it, when Jesus has left the earth, he left behind in this trail of people's lives that we never know anything about, but they went on to live amazing lives. And we're not into the prisons to get prisoners safe so we can tell you about them. We want to know the story afterwards. And we have people that track people and say, we, we know that you got saved in prison and that's awesome. And we clap at that. But what we want to know is what happened 10 years later. When the video kept running that you went on to live a productive life and you went on to turn away from a life of crime and you became this contributing person to society. I was, uh, I think in Singapore and I, was, I met several people that had, had a terrible background. A, a guy that was a, a life criminal. He's now a lawyer. How could he do that? I don't know, he could do that when they did a background check that you're a well-known criminal. He's now a lawyer and he's a lawyer is a lawyer in the area of defending people that committed the crimes he used to commit. <laughs> nobody can represent you better than someone that did what you did. <laughs> That's why Jonah was such a fantastic preacher when he got to Nineveh. There's nobody can preach salvation like somebody that was just swallowed by a whale. <laughs> nobody can preach salvation like somebody that's just been delivered. The best people to be on the search and rescue missions in the Dales or the Pennines or whatever people get lost are people that themselves were once lost. As we all were. And the best solution bringers are people that have had a lot of problems. And you've realized what it is to be at the other side of that and to enjoy a solution and to then to go and bring something of that wisdom to a person's life. So hey, if your life's had a lot of problems, you're a blessed person. You're a blessed person if you don't stop at the problem and you seek to go beyond the problem and find, find the sweetness in the bitterness, find the wisdom in the difficult thing, find something that's an answer, not just for you, but for those you'll go on to meet with the same problem or similar challenges and say to them, here's what I found. It wasn't tidy, it wasn't brilliant, I don't even think saying it to you sounds that good. But here's what I found. It's just a small chink of light at the end of someone's tunnel that you can bring today. You and I are problem-solving machines. That's why when you spend your life around the problem, even God checks out. 
this sense sometimes that God's not really there? I mean, He is there because He'll never leave you or forsake you, but that sense of God's like not talking. Because you keep wanting to talk about the problem and dig the hole a bit deeper. And God's like, when you're finished, can we start talking about the solution? Can we start moving towards how we fix this? And God likes that I'm not getting involved anymore. I know your friends like to get involved in the problem. I know others like to talk it with you. But I am waiting until you're all done. And then can we get to the solution? God is so geared towards the solution. And you don't need to get involved in the problem. And that can be a huge frustration if you don't understand that about God. What's the point in two of us digging a hole quicker than one of us can? And a group can dig even quicker. And some of you are professional PhD career hole diggers. We don't want to know who you are. We don't want to meet you. Don't bring a shovel to my problem. Well, thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial. And uh, I know time is precious commodity for us all, but I would love it if you would take the time to write a review or comment. And above all, maybe subscribe to my podcast channel. Thank you.